I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The very first sermon that I gave at Warrington Bible Fellowship was the end of February 2003. Our pastor had gotten sick unexpectedly, and uh, the elders called me on Wednesday and said, do you know how to preach? And I said, well, I've got a sermon. There's a long story behind that one I'd like to share with you sometime. Uh, but I preached out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Chapter 8 is about going out to the wilderness and learning to depend on God, as we're going to find out. And I actually walked through the passage. I'd never done that before. And what I didn't realize is that we were on the verge of going out in the wilderness as a church. For two years, we were without a pastor. And uh, God was, in his wisdom, preparing us for that wilderness experience. And so I thought it would be a fitting time to look back and, and take a look at this passage one more time as we sit on another momentous day. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. It's an unusual passage. You stop and take a look at it. There's kind of neat stuff happening in here. They're obviously on the verge of something great, and there's incredible promises right here at the end, uh, but right there in the middle, we have this this, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines. What is that about? Well, we don't know what has happened prior to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're not going to understand the full impact of, of this line and, and this passage. So let, let me just give you a quick background here. In Genesis chapter 15, God forms a covenant with a man named Abram. Uh, he, he's going to become Abraham. And he promises him that he's going to multiply him, that he's going to become the father of nations. We've been looking at this the, the last couple of times we got together and kind of circumspectly. Well, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 sons supernaturally end up in Egypt, and that's in, in Exodus, uh, pardon me, Genesis 45 through 47. And they do, they multiply, they become great. Things don't turn out exactly the way everybody thought they would turn out. 
uh, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, the nation has indeed grown. They've become a multitude, but they've also become a threat to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh enslaves the nation. They stay enslaved for 400 years. And so in Exodus chapter 1, we find the Hebrews working as slaves for Pharaoh. Now, in Exodus chapter 3, God promises to deliver the Hebrews out of Egypt and send them a deliverer. Now, that happens to be Moses. And he promises them that he's going to give them a land of milk and honey. It's kind of the first hint of what's going to come in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So, in Exodus 12, he delivers them out of Egypt. There are miracles. There's a parting of the sea. Uh, They leave Egypt with the riches of Egypt with them. They've got all the wealth of Egypt. If you look at some extra uh, biblical material, you also find out that they plundered the Egyptian army as it lied there uh, on the shores of the Red Sea. They took armor and weapons and, and helmets and that sort of thing. So they've got riches. They've got, they've got the equipment for warfare. And, and they get out into the wilderness on the other side of the Red Sea, and they don't have any food. I mean, it's the wilderness. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, So they start complaining. God gives them manna in Exodus chapter 16. Now, this is bread, uh, actually wafer-type stuff that falls from the sky. And God says, look, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you all you need, but but it's only good for a day. They can try and store it, but it's not going to last longer than a day. And so God's teaching them that he wants them to, to depend on him on a daily basis for what they want. And the, the manna lasts an extra day on Sabbath so they don't have to work. God's just working miracles there. In the next chapter, in chapter 17, they have no water. And they start complaining. God starts producing water out of miraculous sources. It's coming out of rocks. It's coming out of everything you would not expect water to come from. And later on in chapter 17, God gives them their first military victory. So God is very active in their lives through Exodus chapter 17. By chapter 19, he has them at the base of Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 20 through 23, he gives them the law. Now I want you to notice what happened here. Because we have this preconception of what the Old Testament is about. The Old Testament is about the law. The Old Testament is about the angry, vengeful God. We've talked about that before. But in all actuality, if you've you've traced the history of the Hebrew people, what did they receive first? They received deliverance first. They received the grace of God first. Grace comes before the law. There's a lesson in there. There's a lifetime lesson there. Grace preceded the law. In the book of Leviticus, God establishes the priesthood and gives them the guidelines for worship. And they're all established by God and by his word. And then in Numbers, he begins to prepare them for war. Chapters 1 through 11 in Numbers. And the preparation isn't what we would think it is. They don't go to basic training. They don't go out in the fields and study with their their swords and their their spears and polish their armor and everything. Chapters 1 through 11 on Numbers are actually guidelines for leading holy lives. He tells them how they're going to conduct holy and godly lives. And that's preparation for battle. They don't quite realize it yet, but that's what's happening. So... In Numbers 12 to 14, he brings them to the edge of the promised land. So this is it. The the land that he had promised them, the land of milk and honey, is just over the border. And they very wisely, maybe not so wisely, 
sends some spies over there, and the spies come back and they say, you ought to see it, man. The grapes are this big, but so are the people, and we don't think we can handle this. And everybody gets afraid, and instead of trusting God and going in and taking the land that he said that he would give them, they refuse to go. They rebel. And for their rebellion, they are sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They're sentenced to wander in the wilderness for an entire generation until all of those people, except for Joshua and Caleb, die off. So they, they try to go in, you know, when, when they hear that God's upset, they go, oh, don't worry, we'll go, and they suffer their first defeat. So God will not tolerate that level of rebellion. And you know what, in Numbers 15 through 36, you're the end of Numbers, uh, it kind of details that walk of 40 years, and I've got to tell you something, it's a tough walk. They have a lot of hardship. They don't handle everything real well. They continue to grumble and groan, and every time they turn around, they're turning their backs on God. But God continues to bless them, and God never leaves them. And we're going to see that very vividly in just a second. So by the end of Numbers, they're at the border of Canaan once again. Now this time, they've come up on the other side. They're standing in the Jordan River. They're looking over into Canaan. And Deuteronomy is all about preparing God's people to enter into the promised land, to receive the, the promise and the blessing that God has given him. And it starts out with a review of everything that's happened. They go over the history. Uh, and, and, and they need to hear this because we've got to remember that that other generation has died away. Now the teaching's been handed down. The people know their history. Uh, they know that they are God's chosen people. Uh, but uh, they pause there at the banks of the Jordan and go over everything that God has done for them. So at, at a very basic level, Deuteronomy, the entire book, in particular the first eight chapters of Deuteronomy, asks a, a, a very simple question. How faithful is God? How faithful is God? And we're going to try and answer that in these ten verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we're going to see two things. We're going to see God's compassion. Uh, we could call this God's love. Uh, verses 1 through 6 are all about God's compassion. And in verses 7 through 10 we will see God's country. We'll see the fulfillment of that love and the promise of the country. So we're, we're going to look at what these two examples of God's faithfulness mean, and then we're going to pause for just a second and see what they might mean to us. See how they, that might be pertinent to us as to more than just a history lesson, but how we can apply the lessons we learn in God's faithfulness in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 1 through 10 to our lives. So let's take a look at God's compassion in 1 through 6. He said, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now, there's a whole lot here that might go unnoticed. He said, if you do what I tell you to do, you're going to live and multiply. The multiply is kind of a neat thing. Because if you take a look, there are two sentences in Numbers. One is at the beginning of the book. One is near the end. And... Uh, so we have this census of how many warriors they have. There's about 650-some thousand odd, maybe a little more, a little less than that. And uh, that whole generation dies away. And at the end of the book, when they take the census again, it's about the same number of people. And so what we find out is that they've been wandering for 40 years. They were rebellious against God. And one of the prices of not obeying God 
Once it, one, one of the, the consequences of not being obedient to him is that you don't grow. Now, we're not necessarily talking about numerical growth, uh, but we're talking about spiritual growth. So they're the same at the beginning of the four years as they were at the end. So God says, if you obey me, if you do what I tell you to do, I'm going to multiply you, and I'm going to give you the land that I swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Have you ever been in a wilderness? I mean, have you ever been there spiritually? Have you ever felt like you were alone? Have you ever felt like you were just this isolated person standing out in the middle of nowhere and you're spiritually dry and God's not there and he's not hearing you and maybe he's not listening to you and you feel abandoned and you feel the weight of the world upon your shoulders? I think that's how the Hebrews felt for those 40 years. And what does God tell them at the end? No, that's not true. You're not alone. I told you I would never leave you or forsake you. I told you you were my people. I told you that I was going to give you the land. And you may have felt alone. You may have felt dry. But I was with you every step of the way. As a matter of fact, I was leading you. Our relationship with God isn't based on our feelings. It's based on God's word. It's based on his promise, based on his presence in our lives, whether we feel it or not. So God's been with him for 40 years in the wilderness. They felt like he had sent them out to the wilderness. And I think we get this picture of God every now and then that he sends us out of the wilderness. He's standing over in the edge, maybe in the shade, going, well, when you learn your lesson, come on back. God says, no, no, I was with you every step of the way. Why? That he might humble you. Why did they need to be humbled? They needed to be humbled because they took matters into their own hands. They had a promise to God. God told them, go in and take the land. They said, you know what, God, hold on a second. We need to think about this a little bit further. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago about praying and filling God in on the details. God, you you didn't tell us that, that there were giants there. You, you didn't tell us that we had to fight. And God's like, well, I gave you armor. What did you think it was for? <laughs> you didn't tell us that, that this might be dangerous, that we might get hurt. We're not going to go. They, they were, were self-determined to the nth degree. And so God said, for that pride, you need to be humble. I took you out there so that I would humble you. And I let you hunger. What kind of God is that? I'm hungry. I, okay. I led you to this place where you'd be hungry. Matter of fact, I brought you out to this place that has no food. There might have been a million and a half people there. And they're out in the middle of nowhere. God says, I let you be hungry. Why? And fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. They cry out, God, we want some food. We need some meat. (laughs) That doesn't turn out so well. Take a look at that chapter. God makes food rain from the sky. Food that nobody's ever seen before. Food that doesn't look like food. You know, I mean, there's a a life lesson right there. When you're out in the wilderness, God will sustain you. He will feed you. He will nourish you. It might not look like what you expect it to look like, 
but it's what God wants you to have. He said, I gave you manna. I gave it to you on a daily basis, and I gave you water out of unlikely sources. When you were hungry, I fed you. When you were thirsty, I gave your water. Why? So that, that he might make them know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you understand that we live and die based on the word of God? God wanted to teach him that lesson. And then he says this. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. It's almost like God has this smile on his face. He said, did you notice? Did you notice while you were walking out in the wilderness and the wind was blowing and the sand's going all over? Did you notice that your clothes just didn't rot and fall off your bodies? Did you notice you've been wearing the same outfit for 40 years and it never wore out? Do you notice that you've been walking 20 miles a day every day for 40 years and your feet didn't get big and your sandals didn't wear out? Did you even notice that I have preserved your clothing and I have preserved your shoes and I've preserved your feet? Did you think I wouldn't preserve you? God's literally saying, look around you. The evidence of my, my sustaining you, the evidence of my providing for you, the evidence of my, my protecting you is all around you. You just need to look to see it. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. See, there's the background to the discipline. They were disobedient. And God says, you know, you know I'm, I'm not this mad God sitting on a throne just shooting fiery arrows at people. I love you. And I'm disciplining you out of my love. I love you the way a father loves his son. And I want to see you grow. I want to see you healthy. So we had, we had to go out to the wilderness for 40 years. But I didn't send you there alone. I went with you. I took care of you while you were out there. I showed you what the promised land looked like. And, and you kind of went, went against my wishes, you know. So we went for a walk. My dad would take me out in the backyard with a switch. <laughs> but when we were done, we would go back into the house. God laid, led them back to the promised land. His promise wasn't nullified by what they did. Why? Verse 6, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways. You know, the Church Universal doesn't really like the whole commandment thing a lot anymore. Uh, this whole idea of God's guidelines for walking in his ways for holiness. Uh, I, I, I mean, there, there are a lot of churches other than Warrington Bible Fellowship that, embar uh, that embrace this, and, and it's a good thing. But it's just not a real popular message. But i got to tell you something. That whole idea of the commandment to walk in his ways appears 94 times in the Bible. 94 times alludes to walking in the ways of the Lord. It must be really important. And, and furthermore, that by fearing him, the idea of the fear of God. Now, we, we've talked about this before. This is not the uh, trembling, oh, God is going to get me fear we're talking about. We're talking about the awe of the glory of God, the, the uh, reverential uh, uh, humility before God as we encounter his holiness and his purity. Uh, we're talking about a, a, a very deep reverential respect 
for God, the fear of God. And, and, uh, and again, a lot of people will attribute that to the Old Testament, but it, that occurs 36 times in the Old Testament. You know what? It's 13 times in the New Testament as well. So it's one of those threads that runs through the entire Bible, the commandment to walk in his ways and the commandment to fear him. So God, God has provided for his people. He's taking care of them despite their disobedience to him and, and despite their sometimes bad attitude. So, you know, we, we see this emphasis on being obedient. Well, why does God want us to be obedient? I mean, he's a benevolent God. He loves us. I mean, he said he loves us like a father loves a son. Why don't he just let bygones be bygones? You know, let him get away with that. He's a pretty good kid. God, and, and we just saw the, experience, the, the, the examples of why he wants us to be obedient. God wants us to be obedient so that we can walk in the fullness of his blessing. So that we can walk in the fullness of his presence. Obedience allows us to walk in his protection and his provision. Disobedience removes us from that. God wants good things for us because he loves us. He says, obey me and walk in the fullness of my blessing. Listen to what I'm saying, and as you go into this promised land, you're going to have it. Well, what is that promised land? We've seen God's compassion. We've seen his great love for his children. And now we're going to see God's country. And, and this is, I mean, when we take this in context, this is kind of mind-blowing. He says this, for the Lord your God, in verse 7, is bringing you into a good land. Everybody gets that, a good land. A land of brooks of water of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. Now, this is a whole generation of people that have grown up in the wilderness. I've been out there, and let me tell you something. There's nothing but flat land and a hill every now and then, and everything is brown and rust-covered with a blue sky above it that has no clouds. And it doesn't change. It's an error. There's nothing there. This entire generation has grown up in that environment. And they're standing there going, good land, I like that. Brooks, waters, valleys, what is that? You, you, are you telling me that water just flows through the land? I've never seen that. I've had to wait for, for Moses to go pound on a rock to see water. You mean nobody's going to have to pound on a rock to get water? So they're trying to imagine what this looks like. And then he goes on and he says, A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. Again, they're like, figs? What are they? Are they going to fall from the sky? Because that's where the manna comes from. That's where our food comes from. They're going to fall from the sky. And these olives, God, we've heard talk of olives. I've heard stories about olives. I've never seen one. And now, now they're talking about beyond their imagination that God described a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. They don't even know what bread is. They've been mashing up manna in which you will lack nothing. Then he says, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And I've got to tell you something. You've got to take this in context again. They hear that and they go, hey, wait a minute. What, 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 did he say iron and copper? You know what they used iron and copper for back then? Weapons. Did you say, we need iron and copper? Hmm. 
back again to the armor and everything. But then God finishes with, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Eat and be full is probably something they haven't experienced either. So we see these ultimate expressions of God's compassion, God's love for his children, and the promise of the country. And we see, we see God's faithfulness. It, it, I, I mean, isn't that what the story's been from the beginning? Uh, even if you go all the way back to the garden, God ejects Adam and Eve from the garden, but he doesn't destroy them. He provides for them. We've seen God's faithfulness through the, every, every major event in the Hebrew's life, starting with Abraham. Every time his people stumble, every time they fail, every time they get it wrong, every time they turn their back on him, there is a price to pay. There are consequences they have to pay for that. But God's grace is consistently shed upon them. And it's there because, not because of who they are. I mean, we need to see this by now. It's not there because of who they are or what they've done. It's there because of who God is and how faithful and true to his word he is. It's there because God said, I will do this, and he's going to do it. And his promises are not dependent upon their demeanor or their behavior. We see the compassion. We see the country. And what we see is God's faithfulness. How faithful is God? God is infinitely faithful. He is infinitely faithful. And, and we're, we're going to see this. You know, the story doesn't end there for the Hebrews. Check this out. They, they go in and they take the land. Uh, very bloody. It, it's a fight. I mean, they need that armor. They, they need the copper. They need the iron. They need all they got. But it, it, they take the land. But for another 14 centuries, they, they are in this tension with God. They're constantly turning their back on him, forsaking him, running after other idols, running after God. The nation that established splits, they go in two, they get carried away. They're carried into captivity. God sets them free. They're carried into captivity again. Uh, when they finally assemble, uh, they're, they're, they're a shadow of what they were. Judah's still there. Uh, some of the tribes are kind of floating around, and most of them are scattered. And at the end of 14 centuries of disobedience, 14 centuries of not doing what God has called them to do, God sends them the Messiah. You talk about God's grace. Isn't that incredible? God is faithful to his promise to them. He said that there would be a Messiah, that there would be a deliverer. And in spite of, of over 21 centuries of them demonstrating their unfaithfulness, God shows that he is faithful. He sends the Messiah to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. It really is incredible. God is infinitely faithful. What does that mean you. Great for the Jews, right? Let me tell you something. If you came in here today and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you've repented from your sins, if you've turned to them, if you put your trust in God, what did God promise you? I'm going to come back and take you home. 
I'm going to take you to a land of milk and honey. I'm going to take you to a place that is beyond your imagination. And you might feel like you're out in the wilderness right now, but don't worry because I'm there with you. It's his promise to us. I love that. I love that because, you know what? Sometimes life is not so easy. Sometimes I do feel out there alone. Sometimes I wonder whether or not the promises are valid or whether or not they're valid for me. I praise God that his promises to you and me are based on who he is and not on who I am. And God spent all that time with the Hebrews showing us that that was true. And ultimately, he sent salvation to them. Ultimately, God sent salvation to us. I love that. That's good. What does it mean to us as a church? We're about to, this fall, we're about to begin observing our 40th anniversary. And you know something? It's been, it's been an incredible 40 years. <laughs> I'm the fourth pastor that this church has had. And uh, the three before me were loved and respected. And I felt the same love and respect. But we've been through some stuff, haven't we? I mean, we're a little empty today because power's out. We've had a storm, but we've had far fewer people than this in the pews. We've ran out of money a couple times. I'm talking about ran out of money. You know, it, everybody's pay was on hold. We got to the point twice where we couldn't pay the electric bill. We couldn't replace the carpeting in the sanctuary because there was no money. Yet God proved he was faithful every step of the way. Money would show up here miraculously when we needed it. And now, now he's placed a faithful congregation here in these pews. You know, when I got ordained uh, two years ago, that was just an incredible moment for me. Not for me personally, I, I, I was humbled by it. But it was an incredible moment for me because for me, it was something that we all did. I mean, this congregation supported me in conferences and study and study materials and so on and so forth. So when I stood up here and, and they prayed over me, I felt like the, those pastors that assembled here from the town and from the EFCA, I, I felt like they had their hands on all of us. And God has, has knit our hearts together in such an incredible fashion that he's, you know what? It's been 40 years of God's faithfulness for us. And I take that as a deposit and a promise on the next 40 years. And I want to be standing here when we look back on the next 40. That's going to make me 105 years old. Okay? And there's nothing that I would desire more than to have every one of you standing with me looking back on these next 40 years. But here's what I know. Whether we're here or whether we're up there, we're going to celebrate those 40 years together. Amen? Why? Because God has been faithful all this time. And there's no reason in the world for us to believe that he's not going to continue to be faithful. God has promised us that if we preach his word and we do our best to follow him and be obedient to him, that we'll walk in the fullness of his blessing. We have walked in the fullness of God's blessing for 40 years. I'm looking forward to the next 40. 
And I've got evidence of his faithfulness. Okay, it's right here. This is our mortgage. You know what? God retired it. <laughs> it's done. It's gone. This is something that we did together. Amen. 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 That's why he makes us into a body. That's why we come here every Sunday morning. That's why we put our focus on him. That's why we do our best to follow him. Let's pray. And then we'll, we'll have communion together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, for how you keep demonstrating that, Father, throughout the history of mankind. You show us your faithfulness, Father. We thank you for showing us your faithfulness here in Warrington, Virginia, in this church. And we pray, Father, that we would take that faithfulness out with us as we exit this building and demonstrate it to the people around us that need so desperately to know that there is hope, that there is an answer, that there is a future, that you do have a plan for our lives, Father. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.